Dr. Veronica Anderson is an MD, and for her that means many dimensions. She's a surgeon, a mother, a black belt, and a two-time marathon runner here to talk to you about your health, your happiness, and your world. It's Wellness for the Real World with Dr. Veronica. And welcome again to Wellness for the Real World. I'm Dr. Veronica. I'm here with you once again to usher you through some interesting topics. And today we're going to talk about some relationship topics. We all care so much about our our romantic relationship. We also care about our family, our friends, and all that, but especially our romantic relationships. It seems like you love them or you hate them. And we all go through relationships and have been through the times where we try to figure out why is this so difficult? Is everybody else having this problem? How did I pick out this person that's just so dysfunctional? I'm pretty normal. I'm seeing things normal. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. And that person over there who I thought I liked, yuck. They just are not so cool. And how do I get out of this? What do I do? Now, there's all kinds of theories on relationships and how to fix them and all that type of stuff. And the main theories we talk about and we hear day-to-day in the main media is about Communication. And so you assume if I communicate well and that person over there listens to me, then therefore the relationship should be good. So I'm communicating well. How come the relationship's not doing well? So I'm not going to communicate anymore. And then we all have these different communicating styles. And interesting enough, um, you start out, you're in love, the butterflies are in your stomach, it's so wonderful, and then you end up with the person that you feel that you love, things are quote-unquote permanent, and all of a sudden they're not working, and then you're looking at the D word. Well, here I am, a newlywed still, I've been married officially since December 31st, I've been married before. My husband has been married before, and obviously we didn't make it the first time around. So here's the here's my here's my concern. My concern is I didn't make it the first time around, and let me just know, I was married to a difficult man. He was married to a difficult woman. Of course, everybody says that the other person's a difficult one. <laughs> Don't we all? We all rewrite the history of our relationships, and we can talk about that tonight too. But here it is. I've been in this relationship before, long-standing. My ex was in a relationship, not you know, not really short-lived, relatively long, but probably half the length of my own. Um, and I'm thinking, okay, I don't really know how to persevere. I don't know how to communicate. Do I know how to pick the right person? How do I make this work? And my husband and I both are thinking, I'm going to do, we're going to do what we have to do to make it work. However, neither one of us is a professional. So therefore, we need some help. So here we go. Now, we have the guest on, we have a couple guests on tonight who both are relationship experts. And I'll tell you, Russell, I remember why I picked one of the experts because they talked about being, um, dating tips for for gay elders <laughs> whatever that means um 
So, so everybody, please, don't laugh at me. Don't laugh at me. I'm pardon not saying me. you're pardon old me. man. Pardon me. Who are you speaking to? Pardon me. <laughs> I'm not saying you're old man. I mean, However, must have a bad connection. <laughs> you think of these, um, you know, young flipping around people who are, who are, you know, just sort of the stereotype. Yeah, and you never. Baby. <laughs> and then you never think about well, what happens as people age and. Um, they're still people stay the same. They're they're homosexual. What happens at that point in time? Um, but relationships are relationships, and people are people. And so, whatever one person says, the other one one professional says, it's going to apply because people are people. So, what I want to do is, I want to bring on our venerated guest. She is the discoverer of. Um, a, a newer theory of how relationships work and why we act what we act. And, you know, you feel like when you're clinging to your partner, you're being really needy and you're not supposed to need anyone. You're supposed to just grow up. You're supposed to be independent. You're 100% okay without being with someone. And therefore, when you feel like you need to be with someone, you feel like, oh, my God, this is horrible. So I know, I don't know, Russell, have you ever felt like you needed to be with somebody, like I'm talking about a specific person, you were with them, you say, wow, I feel like I need this. I feel like this is part of my breathing, part of my eating, part of my drinking. And if I don't have this, I feel like, oh my God, I might die. Have you ever felt like that? Russell? Um, I I think you must have the wrong Russell. <laughs> you caught me back there on gay elders. I don't know. I'm going to take a while to recover from that. Um, have I ever felt like you said? I mean, oh boy. Yeah, I have felt like that in um moments of <laughs> of passion. Um I've never really allowed myself to feel like that in real life. You know, truly feel like, "Oh my god, I need this person. I would what would I be without this person?" No, honestly, I've never really allowed myself to feel like that because it just felt uh well, it just seems uh ridiculous. It seems unsafe. Ah, so you know what? Just in- you, you really felt like that, Veronica? Have you really felt like that? <laughs> you feel like you horrible person. How could you? Yes, yes. I, yeah. I, I gotta say, um, I don't, I don't feel like I felt like that with my former husband. It was just like you're there. That's fine. You're not there. That's not fine. I mean, totally. I mean, we were a couple for quite a long time, and it was very painful when um, I, I was the one that decided to exit the marriage. But it was more pain than I expected. Um, and we can talk about why that is too. Even when you realize a relationship's dysfunctional, why when you decide to leave it, I feel better now. I know it was the right thing to do. But then I'm with my husband now, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I just feel like I need him so much that. If anything ha- should happen, oh my gosh, I don't, I don't know what I'd do. I feel like I wouldn't survive, and it's the most uncomfortable feeling because I feel like I'm this strong, independent woman, and there's this person that I feel like I, I, I gotta have them. <laughs> it's an emotional, wow. interesting feeling that kind of knocks you off a of balance a little bit. So, well, you see now to me, um, one of the joys of being a little older, and I do not appreciate the word elder, (laughs) but one of the joys of being a little bit older is that 
Um, wow, I'm not looking for a relationship, and I'm not expecting to be a relationship like I um, thought I would have in my 20s, where it's like a pop song, where it's like, oh, you know, you are my everything, we breathe the same breath, we think the same thought, you know, all that stuff. I don't, um, you know, having proven a number of times in my life that that doesn't work for me, I don't long for that or fantasize about that anymore. And yet hearing you talk about it, I'll confess that I'm a little jealous. It sounds great. But Well, no, I can't tell you that I longed for that feeling. I just sometimes sit and think and say, wow, um, this is the way I feel. This is, it just, it's like that. And it's a bit, like I said, it knocks you off a little bit because you're like, okay, what do I do with this feeling? Um, and I think from reading our, our our guest book that perhaps the feeling that I'm feeling is more common than we verbalize, and that's why we act the way we do in relationships. So why don't we get to our guest? You, I was going to introduce this lady who is just, a, I'm, she's such an esteemed person that I feel very special that she said yes. <laughs> to come on the show, so Russell. <laughs> well, yes, I'm. I'm eager to hear her speak. She is the author of a book called "Hold Me Tight: Seven Conversations for a Lifetime of Love." Sue Johnson, Dr. Sue Johnson, is the director of the International Center for Excellence in Emotionally Focused Therapy. And Dr. Sue Johnson, we're glad to have you with us on Wellness for the Real World. Hi. Hi. Nice to be here, guys. Thank you, Dr. Johnson. Okay, you talk about relationships in in the in the form of a, what, what we call attachments. So, yeah. explain a little bit of background of you. You call it EFT, and when we hear EFT today in the new wave, everybody thinks about tapping. But you're not talking about EFT. <laughs> you're treating people. No, you're I'm not talking about tapping. Uh, this is called emotionally focused, and it's called that because. Basically what we do, and we've been developing it over the last 30 years, and we have lots of research right now to show how powerful it is and how much it helps people change their relationships. But what we basically do is we really help them understand what I call the new science of love and bonding, which has just really um, taken off in the last 20 years, 15 years, and isn't actually getting out to the public, which is kind of fascinating. Uh, you know, you'd think that once you really br- crack the code of love that it would be all over the papers, but apparently not. So we really understand a whole lot about love and bonding, and what we do in EFT is we help people understand their emotional needs, and we help people understand the logic of their feelings, the logic of their needs, and we basically help them um talk, send emotional signals to each other in ways that really pull the other person close so that they can create a secure, loving bond. What we sort of assume is that um, if you're married, you do need to be able to do things like negotiate about who's going to do chores. You need to be able to, um, you know, solve problems. Um, but, But in the end... Um, the core, the essence of the relationship is the security of the emotional bond you have. And the, the science really says that if you have a secure emotional bond, 
you can basically deal with um, all the differences that we say split people up, you know, differences in parenting, differences in sexuality, differences in how you deal with finances. If you have this kind of emotional safety between the two of you, you can really deal with all the, the challenges that come towards you and, which fits very well, um, Veronica, with what you were talking about, this kind of emotional bond makes you stronger. And the research for that is irrefutable. Hmm. Um, it's, it's very clear that as human beings, we're des we are not designed to stand alone. We are not supposed to be um, separate and self-sufficient. We're supposed to be connected to other people. And um, it, all the research says that we're stronger that way. You know, even young career women who really value their independence, the research says that when they have a relationship, when somebody has their back, when they have a relationship where they feel safe and connected, that they can turn to for comfort and support, they feel more confident, they're better at solving problems, they're better at dealing with stress, and they meet their career goals faster. <laughs> Interesting. So there's nothing wrong with being needy from this point of view. Being needy is just the way your mammalian brain is put together. You, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. Okay, so let me step back. The previous theories of love were what? Oh, well, we haven't done very well with real theories. We've had sort of basic ideas. One theory has been, um, it's really all about sex. You know, it's just <laughs> uh, love is sort of nature's way of tricking us into passing on our genes. Um, you know, if that was true, then we'd basically do what chimpanzees do, which is just mate and, and go on, and we don't do that. So I think that's a bit of a silly theory. The other theory that was around for a long time was trying to say, well between two adults, you know, um, in the Western world where you don't have to get married and you don't have to stay together or you'll starve kind of thing. Love is a deal. In the end, love to, uh, basically is an economic exchange and it's about profit and loss. And, and if you believe that, of course, what you do is you teach people to negotiate. You know, I'll I'll do this for you if you do this for me. And a good relationship is one where, you know, um, the costs aren't too high for either person. And, and the trouble with this one, of course, is that it has nothing to do with the way we all experience love, which is this, as this tsunami of emotion coming towards us. And really, you know, it's, it's kind of, um, it works okay for relationships in the boardroom. It works okay perhaps for relationships at work some of the time. But this isn't what attachment and bonding is about. What this new research basically says is that um, we bond in our life. We bond with our parents, with our children, perhaps with siblings, occasionally with a very good friend. And we bond with the people we sexually mate with. We, we bond with our lovers. And that these are very special relationships and they are sources of comfort and security and safety in our life. Um, they're kind of irreplaceable. You know, this is this theory was really put together to look at mothers and children, especially after the Second World War, when the whole of Europe was covered with orphans and widows and 
people were really looking at what is this thing called separation and this thing called loss. You know, that's sort of where it came from. But it has only really been applied to adults and adult love in the last 15 years. And it changed, from my point of view, it changes everything. It's, um, you know, love is one of the things that is so important to all of us. And yet we actually haven't had a map for it at all. Um, you know, it's kind of like I say to you, um, there's this incredibly important dance that's going to impact your life and your health and your happiness. And we know that the quality of your relationships absolutely does impact your physical health big time. Yeah. You know, and definitely. your sense of happiness. Yeah. Like it impacts whether you have a heart attack in the first place and whether you recover from the heart attack. That's true. It impacts your immune system. You know, it's a big deal. So we've we've understood sort of how important it is, but we haven't really had a clear sense of what love is about. So it's a bit like me saying to you, this is incredibly important dance. Maybe you've never seen it because your parents didn't particularly have it. And it's incredibly important. And so you're going to be incredibly uptight and make it, <laughs> want to make it work. By the way, you've never seen it and you don't know what it means and nobody's got a map for it. <laughs> and you'd say... Well, don't be silly, Sue. That's crazy. How how are we going to do it? You know, people say to me, um, how can you still believe in love when 50% of the people get divorced? My but that's different, that is, though. Isn't that... Isn't yeah, well, my response is to You can't love someone yeah, you, and still... You can, you can love, but that doesn't mean that your marriage and your relationships are going to work. Right. But my response is also, are you kidding? When we haven't understood love at all, the fact that 50% of us hang in like crazy and try to make it work all the time, and some of us make it is amazing. I mean, either we we are born for this and we long for this on a deep level, or we're all completely psychotic, one or the other, you know. So talk but, uh, to me a bit about okay, we're all we all want to love, and but some of the times, like I said, you know what? I got to the point in my marriage where I felt like. This isn't working for me. And so because yeah. it's not working for me, he's the way he is. He's really always been like that. I'm not going to change him. And so the best thing for me to do is, you know what, I'm moving on. I'm I'm just moving on. And I was the one who decided to leave the relationship. However, when I left the relationship, it still was an incredibly painful experience, more than I yeah. expected. I was, it was like a death. Um, yes. And it was, there was mourning to it. And people said to me, well, what did you expect? And you deserved it and blah, blah, blah. This is how you get treated when you decide that you're leaving a relationship. And yeah. I think there was a lot of pain uh, for both of us, for both me and my ex. We've both moved on. But I mean, I look back on it and I'm like, okay, I can't even figure out exactly what happened. Yeah. Um, but what happens when... Okay, you're you're attached to someone, you're bonded to someone, and then all of a sudden you decide this bond is just not it. Um, what what talk, well, talk I think about this? I think there's something that happens before you decide that. I think um, if you watch people, if you look at people in distress relationships, you know, and I've been working with couples for 30 years, so we've looked at I've looked at seen a lot of couples, a lot of tapes of couples, and done all kinds of research studies on couples. Um, Really what starts to happen is somebody starts to feel disconnected in the relationship. Um, somebody's hurt or disappointed or feels lonely. The connection isn't there. 
And what they do from our point of view is they send up signal flares. It's like saying, where are you, where are you, where are you? Are you there for me? And the tricky part is that we haven't really known, we haven't understood our needs. We haven't really known how to talk about them. So lots of times we say it in a way that it's hard to hear or our partner hears it as criticism. So somebody will say, rather than turning and saying, you know, I'm really hurting right now. I'm feeling really lonely. I can't seem to connect with you. Do you feel that way too? We'll say things like, you know, you never talk to me these days. I don't know how come you, you're not talking to me. You know, why don't you ever talk to me? You know, and I maybe I shouldn't have married you because um, your whole family don't talk to each other, right? <laughs> the other person hears criticism and backs off. And so the more you send up a signal flare, where are you, where are you, the more the other person backs off. And what we see is it turns into this dreadful dance, dreadful dance where one person is pursuing, the other person is distancing. The more the other person feels criticized, the more they move away, and we start to totally lose each other. And this gets to the point where both people are lonely, feeling criticized, feeling unloved, sometimes worrying if they really are unlovable. And that is amazingly painful. <laughs> and I think, you know, people can only do that for so long. Some people are willing to numb out, to try and numb out more than others. But it's a very difficult thing to do to numb that out. And it gets to the point where you just begin to give up. You give up on, on the connection. You say, this hurts too much. I'm too alone. I can't find this connection with this person. I can't turn to them as a safe haven. They're not there for me. And then you begin the process of letting go. And that is very hard for most people, very hard. So, uh, I mean, one of the one of the emotions that I remember is when I started to. I, I think for me, there were a couple things, and I think maybe a lot of people feel this. First, I felt like a utter failure, and like I yeah. had some type of character flaw because how come other people can do this and I can't? I got yeah. Ivy League degrees, graduates. I've been here. I've been there, and this is one simple thing. Why yes. can I hang in here? What is it about me that I just can't do this? I just yes. can't do it. And so here's my question, though, about that. Um, is there a time, and, and let's not talk about, in the next question we're going to talk about this, but let's not talk about that there was severe abuse or anything like that. But there's not, but I still felt like, this, I can't do it. I just can't do it. And I actually felt like at a time, you know what, I feel like I'd rather die than stay in this relationship. Yes. Is that well, common? See, I, yes, it is. And I, I, well, the way I think about it is um, m lots of times it's about loneliness in the end. You know, we are social animals. We are bonding animals. And it is painful and dangerous it feels dangerous for us to be alone and that is not because we're immature it's the, that's the way our brain works okay so we're bonding mammals it's dangerous for us and loneliness is like an alarm signal for the brain and it hurts and we feel like we're not special enough for this person to come and be with us we're not valuable it hurts and there comes a point i think when it's lonelier living in a relationship 
with someone who you just who just won't respond to you or you can't get them to respond to you, you can't figure out how that's lonelier than actually living alone you know it's kind of like living in a room with a beautiful meal laid out in front of you and the meal is always reminding you of how hungry you are but there's glass between you and the meal you can't get there so that kind of loneliness is so painful for people they just get to the place where they can't bear it and they start to give up and separate because that is that is just too painful you know it's it's interesting because we have some people say things like well you should be able to stay together for the kids <laughs> and you know my response to that is do you know what you're talking about? That's like saying you should be able to hang on to the mountain with your fingernails. <laughs> from my point of view, it's, it's and and also of course that assumes that it's good for the kids to live with two people who who can't communicate, right? But it's this we need the person we love, and in our society, you know, I think the other issue is my grandmother lived in a, a small a village of 300 people, so. I think um, we don't do that anymore. It's almost like we count on our partner often for the sense of connection we used to get from a whole village. So when we can't get that connection from our partner, we really do. Uh, we Most of us live in a pretty lonely world. And when we can't get our partner to respond to us, it just hurts so much. I mean, I can tell you what goes on in the brain. I'm not going to do that, but it's, it's amazingly painful, and what the research says is that that kind of social pain light, uh, is, is coded in the same place in the brain and is responded to in the same way as physical pain. So when people say, my heart is breaking, you know, I, take, I listen to it and I hear it literally that this is painful, and people just can't tolerate it. They just can't tolerate this loneliness. Well, I mean, that... that- that flips into, okay, I'm saying, you know, I had a, a situation where I just, you know, for whatever reason, there was a disconnect there. And, but what of these couples where there is physical abuse, um, you know, sexual addicts, alcoholism, yeah. drugs, and people decide that they'd rather stay in this relationship. I remember my husband was telling a story about a, a couple that he lived with early on, and he talked about how the man would beat on the woman, and he would get in the middle and protect the woman. And then later on, the women, woman would turn against him and be on the side yeah. of the man, and they would just be yeah. like happy like two peas in a pod. Okay, yeah. what's going yeah, on I, there? What is going well, on I there? Think, well, I think it's going on there is that, we're wired to need connection and if we grow up in a world where that connection is all mixed up with um danger signals and abuse we think that's we we're just used to that we have a tolerance for it that somebody who grows up in a safe world and knows that you don't need to tolerate that kind of abuse to have connection you know, with somebody and to get somebody to respond to you, we would never dream of of connecting those two things. But if you've grown up in a home where that was the norm and where, you know, if you wanted any sense of connection with other people at all, you had to tolerate that, you had to find a way to numb out and tolerate that, then you have a kind of tolerance, almost an expectation that's going to happen. And the tricky part is, that in lots of the relationships you get a horrible pattern where 
somebody gets violent, the other person does move away to protect themselves, and then the violent person realizes what they've done. They've realized they've they've threatened the relationship, and they turn and they become in that moment amazingly loving and amazingly warm and amazingly responsive. And it's incredibly seductive for people, especially people who have grown up almost expecting that the people who you love also hurt you. You know, it's it's very it's a very difficult one. The people get pulled into directions. They know they need to protect themselves. They know they need to separate. That you don't need to have to be this vulnerable and and have someone abuse you in order to be loved. On some level, they know that. On another level, it feels um, it feels um, familiar. It feels like well, this is the way it is. This is the way it is. And um, and and now he's being so loving. And maybe this time, you know, hope sort of springs eternal here. You know, maybe this time he'll change. It's very difficult. It's very difficult. It's, and in that, I think that sort of scenario is where we got this idea from in the mental health field that needing somebody was dangerous and that people could be too needy. You know, it came out of the addiction. A lot of those ideas came out of the addiction literature that, you know, um, people were too dependent on their partner and so they wouldn't stand up to their partner when they were being abused. Um, and, of course, you know, that is problematic. That's not a safe, loving bond that is going to help you grow and be strong and, you know, explore the world. And um, that is a difficult one. That's a sort of cycle of, of need and addiction that isn't positive. But well, let for me most ask. people, I, I you know, just want that to doesn't ask mean that there's anything wrong with needs per se. Yes. Let me just ask that... Um, what, when you see couples like that, is their rehabilitation able in that type of relationship? I mean, I was just taught by my mom, you know, you got a guy to hit you, that's it. Once is it. One strike, you're out. And because they're always going to be that way. Is that true or false? No, I don't think that's true. I think it's tricky. That's too, that's too um, all-encompassing. You know, um, there's lots of relationships where you know people lose it and they do something violent and they you you can mend that relationship you can help people mend that relationship the issue is the violent person has to take responsibility for that they have to understand that 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 is like building a house and then setting a grenade off in that house that that they can't have they can't get what they want by using violence. They have to learn to deal with that. And the other person has to believe and trust that they are learning and that they're not going to do that. They have to, you know, so, but I think couples can do that. It depends on the level. You know, um, some people have, are so uh, vulnerable and so volatile that it's extremely difficult for them to be close to someone and depend on someone without also trying to control that person. And then when they can't control that person, they feel very threatened. So if you're dealing with somebody like that, that person has to go and be able to deal with that 
you know, um, before they can have a relationship. But I think there are many couples where a violent incident has occurred or people have got stuck in a very negative pattern of emotional abuse, you know, calling each other names, you know, um, blaming each other. Um, and if you're committed and if you're willing to, to look at what's happening in the relationship and work on it, um, yeah, I think a good therapist who has a map who understands what love is about can help you through. But you have to have the the willingness to work. You know, you have to you have to be willing to look in the mirror and you have to be willing to look at what's happening in the relationship. Okay. You know, if you're just gonna say, Well if she hadn't if she didn't talk so much I wouldn't get so mad <laughs> No, that's that you know, I mean I've had people in my office say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not going to work. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about one of the conversations you talk about in having, uh, in having a, a, a healthy relationship, forgiving injuries. Now, I'm not talking just about the type of injuries we've been talking physical. Most couples, the injuries that occur are emotional injuries from hitting what you talk about being the raw spots. And everybody has the raw spots in their relationship. Yeah. How do you actually forgive? Because I just, I can tell you from my past, I just found where I got to the point where I'm like, I'm not taking this anymore. And yeah, yeah. you're forgiven, but I'm not staying with you. Um, yes. Forgiving and staying in a relationship. How does that work? Um, well, that's very interesting because um, we started looking at that about six years ago. And um, we started looking at the fact that in some couples, what we saw was that they would improve their relationship up to a point. They would understand the negative patterns they got caught in. But when we actually asked them to turn and take risks with each other, to reach for each other and pull each other close, they just somebody in the relationship would just stop dead and say, not on your life. I'm never doing that again. I'm I'm not going to be vulnerable. And usually they bring up some incident. And sometimes it was things like an affair that had happened at the beginning of the relationship, but it wasn't always affairs. Sometimes it was things that if you didn't really understand love and attachment, you wouldn't get the meaning of this. But it's things like when my mother died, you know, I asked you, I needed you to be there to come with me to the funeral, and you said you were busy and you wouldn't come. And I was so, I felt abandoned and totally unimportant to you, and I shut down, and I'm never going to need you like that again. I'm never going to put myself in that vulnerable position again. So we find these kinds of injuries. And what we started to do is, um, they would be impasses. You know, our idea is, is not just to get people to be happier in their relationship. We're a bit more ambitious than that. We want to create a secure, lasting bond. And our research says that, you know, if you come and do EFT and we check on you three years later, the results are still really good. You still, you, not only are you happy in your relationship, you trust each other more. So we started looking at this forgiveness. And what we found was that, in a way, um, there are certain key key things that need to happen in couples therapy to change a relationship. We call it a hold me tight conversation. That's why I called my book Hold Me Tight. Yes. Um, you know, there's certain things that need to be able to happen. You need to be able to turn to someone and talk about your fears and your vulnerabilities, feel safe enough to do that, and ask for what you need and have them respond to you in a caring, loving way that makes you feel important and special and held 
and you need to be able to do that. And what we started doing was taking these specific injuries, like you didn't come with me to my chemotherapy in my cancer treatment. You know, and the other person says, you told me you didn't want me there. You know, you told me that, you know, you were fine. And then the person breaks down and says, but of course I wanted you there. I just wanted you to come anyway. You know, it gets very tricky, right? Mm. So <laughs> wow. People okay. have these wounds that they've tried to heal. And, of course, every time they try to heal them, if you don't understand what's going on, you flub it and it gets worse. So every time they try to say, why didn't you come to my mother's funeral? The other person says, oh, no, not this again. You know, I've told you a thousand times. You know, I was sick. You don't want to hear that. I'm not talking about this again. So then the person feels abandoned again. So what we found was that, first of all, you create the safety in the couple. You work in EFT so that people can tolerate taking the risk with each other. They can deal with their emotions. Their emotions make sense to them. And you basically help the person talk about their hurt in a very clear way where they keep their emotional balance and where the other person can hear them. We help the other person hear them, you know, and say things, people say things like, I never understood that it was so important to you. I, I did not understand how vulnerable you were. I don't see you as vulnerable. I see you as this strong person, right? So they start to understand the injury, and then it's almost like you can replay the injury. This time the person says, what I needed was comfort, and they ask for the comfort they need in the here and now because the pain doesn't go away. You know, it's, um, you know on some level, the, the lady is still hurting about her mother and how she went to her mother's funeral alone. And this time the husband hears her pain, and he picks up her cues, and he shows her not just by what he says, but she can look into his face and she can see that he feels her pain and that he cares about her pain. And this time he's there for her and he comforts her. So it's almost like you redo the injury and you turn it into a bonding situation where the person can be there for you. And what we found is that that's a very powerful emotional forgiveness process. It's a lot more powerful than just kind of a moral decision like I forgive you or, you know, it's in marriage, forgiving somebody is a booby prize. If you can have a good marriage, you've got to forgive somebody to the point where you're willing to trust them again. <laughs> I'm sorry. Just saying it's the booby prize. <laughs> yes, well, you know, it's, but we can do it. Our research says that we know how to do it. And, you know, um, we can take these different injuries that people have and, uh, uh, mostly, though, you people don't understand the impact they have on each other. Why would they? You know, people just don't get that, you know, it's not that they're trying to be bad spouses. It's that we haven't understood our emotional needs. So people just don't get the, the wound that they've created when they've done something like um, not responded when the partner's vulnerable. They don't get their impact. So then when and, and perhaps you know if the new science of love has taught us anything it's taught us simply that that if we can understand the impact we have on each other for good and for bad then we can really start to tune into our relationships and create these bonds you know 
And, I mean, this is a health and wellness program. I personally can't think of anything that's better for creating health than a really positive relationship. I mean, the gym's great and not smoking's great, but I think the research says, at least the research I've read, (laughs) says that um, a good relationship trumps all those. That is absolutely true, and it's interesting, especially for men. <laughs> the yes. longevity study shows that it's especially important for men that they fare poorly when they're in, uh, not in relationships, unless there's somebody who's chosen to be single their their entire life. But men who get right. divorced are the lowest; they have the low, low, shortest life expectancy. Divorced men. So. Yes. Dr. Sue Johnson, her book is Hold Me Tight. You, we could we could talk to you on and on for hours about this, oh, it's like been a whole fun. therapy. But I've got to bring in my other psychologist because okay. we're going to continue on with this conversation. Russell, let's do that introduction. Well, yeah, we have with us Dr. Susan Krauss Whitburn. Uh, she is currently a professor of psychology at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. And she's an author of many books, including The Search for Fulfillment, Revolutionary New Research That Reveals the Secret to Long-Time Happiness, and you'll find her blogging regularly in Psychology Today. Dr. Susan Krauss Whitborn, thank you for joining us on Wellness for the Real World. Hi. Well, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Yes, um, thank you for being on. And let's talk about, we've been talking about relationships with Dr. Johnson and, you know, the attachment bond. And you talk about fulfillment at any age. That's the blogs that we see. And that's why I said, let me bring her on, because there are people who figure out how to be happy all the time in their relationships, even when they don't look all that great. So give us some insight. And now wait, let me just—I got to give you some background. If you didn't, you weren't here, and when Russell was trying to get you, I saw an article, and I did this just for Russell, and he's like going to beat me down if he can rage through. It talks about I have survived. Now what? Eight dating tips for gay elders. So I want to oh yes, talk a little bit about that. <laughs> now Russell is not an elder. At this <laughs> Thank point you, in Veronica. Time. Thank you very not much. An elder. Okay. However, I'm he's calm now. He's not <laughs> 20. And so let's first talk about um, relationships and, you know, being happy in a relationship. Because here I am. I'm a newlywed. I didn't do it so well the first time around. Here it is the second time Many around. <laughs> yes. We wanna, we, he, he, same thing with him. Didn't do it so well the first time around. And I actually feel good that I didn't do it for the first time around well and he didn't too because I feel more happy and blissful at this point. However, I know relationships go through phases. So here you are. Tell us some strategies to keep us fulfilled as we move on in our years and in our relationships. Well, I think it's very important that people – assess where they are both as individuals and as a couple. Um, And in the blog that I wrote about the uh, 12 ties that uh, make for um, buying long-term relationships, I really talked about the many ways that couples can develop as individuals and as a in their relationship as a unit. Um, it's it's particularly important that people maintain their own identities even as they share and, and communicate closely and exchange their deepest kind of goals and and aspirations and values um, that that women and men um, or women and women, whoever's in the relationship, needs to maintain your own identity and find what fulfills you. 
So let's talk about maintaining your own identity. I think many people get into a relationship, and there's two things. First of all, there's people who say, I'm not getting into a relationship. I'm not getting married because I think I would lose me. I remember one time a while ago watching Oprah say that. I feel like I can't get married because I feel like I wouldn't be me then, okay? And then there's other people who go into a relationship and feel like, I'm in this relationship, I'm supposed to think like I'm this other person. So I think those are both displaced um, ideas. Yes. Let's talk about yeah. them. Yeah, I mean, I think that the best way to think about the ideal relationship, if there is such a thing, is it's, I like to uh, imagine a Venn diagram, you know, those two circles that intersect. And there's a part where they overlap, and then there's the two parts where they're separate. And there's one person is able to pursue a lot of their own interests and ideas, but they're always coming back to that home base of where they share values and ideals with their partner. And and then the nature of that sharing can really change over time. Um, And at the beginning of a relationship, you've got the passion and you've got the uh, kind of craziness. And then as things settle down for the long haul, that that passion can be replaced by a companionate feeling and 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 just feeling like you're good friends with this person. So, how do you keep the passion in the relationship because that's the difference between being a friend and being more than that? Oh, this is true. <laughs> well, I think everybody's got their own uh, particular formula for that. Um, and actually, just today, I wrote about what the difference is between the first month of a relationship and then the long haul. It, I, it's called when it comes to sex and love, slower is better. So at that beginning stage, when you just want to rush to um, intimacy and moving in together, that's a really good time to think and evaluate and and really explore whether you share a worldview with this person enough to sustain you. Um, But, I I mean, I feel that the passion just takes different forms um, as a relationship goes on. And, and again, we don't know what everybody does in the bedroom. And there was one really fascinating study that came out a few years ago about all the ways that older adults engage in a lot of different sexual behaviors that I, I think was pretty shocking to young people. Um, <laughs> they just couldn't imagine what you know their grandparents get up to. Um, and I always get a kick out of it. When I tell my students about this study, they're squirming in their seats. You know, they just can't wait till it's over because they can't stand thinking about it. <laughs> but, but, yeah, we don't know what's actually going on in there, and we don't need to know. But if the couple is finding ways to relate um, that, make them feel good about themselves and each other. I mean, that's really what we're what we hope for. Yes. Now, one thing is that you're talking about take it slow in a relationship, and you say, but on one hand, you're saying sex and love, you should go slow and figure it out. But on the other side of things, people cohabitate, and it shows that people who cohabitate are more likely to divorce, and we've known that for years. So is yes. cohabitating, taking it slow, aren't we dipping our foot in the water and seeing whether it will work or not and then deciding, okay, well, this seems pretty good. Let's get married. What's going on with with that? Why are people who cohabitate more likely to divorce? Well, it depends when they decide to move in together. If they get engaged and then cohabitate, that's different 
than if they're living together and then they decide to get married. So the cohabitation effect only applies to people who cohabitate um, before they get engaged. Because then you've got the inertia and the slide, um, that kind of sliding, it's comfortable. Or There are a million reasons why people decide that they're going to get married, and it doesn't always have to do with love um, in a cohabiting relationship. So the, the thing with this latest study, yeah, that, that was so fascinating to me was um, because, you know, I think we're all really kind of scratching our heads over the co- cohabitation effect, um, but really it's that phase where you're um, exploring the emotional intimacy, not just the physical side, that's going to determine whether this is a relationship that's going to last over the long haul. And when you so, talk about exploring emotional intimacy, Clarify that. I mean, there's, there's people understand people equate what is intimacy with sex. So tell us, dissect apart for us emotional versus physical intimacy. Well, the emotional intimacy is can I can I say things to you um, that I wouldn't say to other people. Um, would be one question. Um, do I feel I can trust you? I know that word is overused a lot. Um, actually, talking about the attachment bond, I, I think uh, Dr. Sue Johnson was making some excellent points about that because um, it is really this feeling that you, you can rely on this person, that they're not going to drop you, that they're not going to leave you if you do something bad or reveal something about yourself that you're scared to reveal. So emotional intimacy means sharing. Um, It means being able to um, make some kind of commitment, even if it's a tentative one, at least have the capacity to make commitments. Um, Maybe not right now with that person, but eventually. Um, And be able to communicate. It's really those three C's, capacity, uh, uh, communication and and closeness and uh, being able then to to make a, a, a commitment. Okay, so let me let me ask you this. You talked about the T word, trust. Can I trust yeah. you? And right. one of the uh, problems I think people have is trusting people, not because of the person they're currently in the relationship with, but because of situations from the past. You yeah. learn over time when we've been in relationships that it's, I can't trust this person. I don't know what's going to happen. I say for myself... I was long married. When I felt like I revealed myself, I felt like I was cast away, and that's why I decided at a point to re- lead the relationship. If I'm really me, you don't love me. So if I'm with somebody right. who casts me away like that, how can I ever really trust anybody else? And I find myself feeling like, oh, my gosh, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, there's no, there's no sign that there's a problem. But stuff happens, and people change. And so, talk about how we do develop trust, because you know you've been in in a place where it's it's been a long time, and things didn't work out. I feel like, oh my gosh, I don't I don't have any certainty about anything, and that's just what life is uncertain. How do you develop trust after problems? I, I think behaviors have to establish whether that trust is going to be there. 
Um, and and this is where sex becomes such a problem because people delude themselves into thinking, oh, I can trust this person and they really care about me and really it's just physical. So that wasn't true. And then it's even worse because you really made yourself vulnerable to somebody who had a very different set of goals than you did. Um, but if you find that you, you can make these sort of revelations about yourself and small steps and nothing bad happens, um, and, and there isn't that confounding factor of just wanting to get in the sack. <laughs> but, but really, that's what I mean about emotional intimacy. You, you, can, you can make those revelations about yourself, and they don't disappear. The person doesn't disappear. Um, gradually, you can rebuild trust. Okay. Now, we have to, I gotta switch gears and bring Russell on. I gotta hear more about the dating tips for, for gay elders. I mean, I said, all these relationship uh, issues and, and strategies that we're talking about apply to all types of relationship, whether they be heterosexual or homosexual. Um, and so, when right. you talk about what, but you're talking about dating tips for gay elders. What's different about gay relationships as people age? Well, they've been through a very different set of experiences um, because of so many events that have occurred um, where even coming out until recently was just not okay at all, and you didn't see movies and TV shows, and it just wasn't out there. Um, And then um, AIDS um, and, and... the the many of course the many biases um that people have suffered created a different culture um i don't think fundamental basis for these relationships is different but i think the culture is different and that puts strain on these relationships that wouldn't otherwise be there so how do you advise um gay people differently about their relationships well, I, first I want to give credit to my good friend and colleague, Dr. Douglas Haldeman. Um, if anybody listening is a member of the American Psychological Association, he's running for president, and um, I've been supporting him, I think, for the last 10 years. So I have to say he has taught me a lot um, about about the, his world and his perspectives, and um, he has done so much to help us how how gay elders feel. Um, but so wait, let me there's many step, simil- back, step back a second. Are you, you're saying Dr. Haldeman, who is running for the president of the American Psychological Association, is is gay? Yes. Okay. I got it. So keep going. And he's married. Um, and he is an... Pardon? Married to a man. Okay, well, I, I have yep. to ask that because we've done shows where we've had gay men yeah, married to women, so we have <laughs> this to. This is true. No, he's openly no, and and he's um, helped to write um, sort of language that psychologists follow for treating gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgendered clients. Um, so APA has a, a sort of statements about, uh, and, and people can really find these online, and you don't have to be a therapist to learn from them. Um, they're very, very beneficial. Um, so he's, yeah, I mean, he has really done a lot to advance psychology's um, thinking about gay relationships. But in answer to your question, 
there's a lot that's the same. I think the difference is the culture uh, and the history that people are coming to their relationships from. It's, I mean, when anytime people have been um, the targets of active discrimination and still are, um, their relationships are going to sort of be fed by um, kind of different conflicts um, than people who don't. So if you're taking a group that's discriminated against, and they're finding each other, and yet they and they know how much um, discrimination they face and how the odds are against them, and, and all the stereotypes too about you know they they can't have stable relationships and you know they um, really are just in it for the sex and they're just going to go and take somebody, leave them and trash them. I mean, all all the things that are said are so hurtful, and I think it make it particularly hard uh, for them to learn to trust each other um but he says you know embrace your age because uh, in terms of gay elders um feel that in in this community being over 40 doesn't have to be a deficit um I gotta and have, it's true for i was just say i gotta go have ahead. russell like jump in he's like being too quiet over there russell you gotta like ask a question <laughs> Are you there, russell? okay i'm here i'm here goodness knows yeah let me ask you a quick question um you know as you become a a gay elder, which apparently is a gay man over 40. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, how do you? Um, you, you still kind of want, you know, the commitment, you want the relationship, and yet um, being adults, and especially if you, you're two men or women, for that matter, from, from yeah. an urban um, uh Lifestyle. I mean, realistically, you've had sex recreationally all your adult life, and there are hundreds of men, you know, in your past. And is is it realistic to say, okay, it's just me and you now forever, baby, mm-hmm. you know, um, the way it yeah. is for a male-female couple? I'm curious what you have to say about that. Well, I mean, there are plenty of male-female couples who have had hundreds of sexual partners in their past. So, I mean, in that regard, um, I mean, the reasons might be have been different um, for a gay couple um, because of what I just mentioned. But, there, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, there are plenty of heterosexual couples like that. So, um, I don't know. There's a lot we don't know um, about long-term um, gay relationships. Uh, and in my research on relationships in general, I mean, I'm always looking for information on this topic, and it's very, very hard to find. It's even hard to know how many same-sex couples are living together in the United States. I mean, you can hardly get that data from the Census Bureau. So if we can't even get numbers, it's even harder to find out what's going on inside those relationships. Um, but but there there's no reason that the dynamics should be any different um, based on relationship fundamentals. The differences would have to do with cultural factors that invade those relationships. Uh huh. You know, as I said, discrimination history, uh, where you live, and you said you know, urban couples. Urban people are going to have different experiences than people out in the suburbs or rural areas um, where this isn't considered a sort of typical lifestyle. And, you know, we've got the U.S. versus other countries. Um, You know, China, for instance, I mean, the the culture is completely different. Even though there are many homosexual people living in China, it's definitely not talked about. So um, all of that takes away from the kind of human nature of the interaction. 
Yeah, I'm a little um, I'm a little jealous, frankly, of guys and women coming out today, uh, because when I chose to come out, it it in a large way in my mind meant giving up my personal hopes for a family and a stability and that family unit and so forth, and that was just something I kind of had to take with it because I didn't see yeah. any other way, and and that really doesn't have to be the way anymore, and I think that's pretty wonderful. Oh, oh. For people so coming out now. Thanks to people yeah. like Dr. Susan Krauss Whitbourne, our venerated psychology today blogger who writes on fulfillment at any age. I want to thank you for being on Wellness for the Real World. Check her out in Psychology Today. She writes some great articles. That's why I was in there looking and said, Oh, I gotta invite this lady on my show. So oh, well, thank I, you. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you to Dr. Sue Johnson. Also, we learned a little bit more about attachment and relationships and about, yes, gay couples are a little the same, except they got some societal pressure. Sounds like being black in America, too. But wellness for the real world. Join us again next week. Thank you, everybody.